This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, a Catholic school offering curriculum, online courses, and study materials, offering an authentic Catholic education, incorporating the faith into every aspect of the learning process. To find out if Seton Home Study School is right for you and your family, go to seatonhome.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation just about each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined, of course, by my podcasting partner, the Pillar's co-founder, Ed Condon. I said just about each week because we did not have a podcast episode last week, Ed. We were down uh, We were down in Florida. Uh, we did not make it to an Olive Garden, but we did make it to a kind of uh, an Irish bar and um, a few other locales. We made it to a Cuban restaurant. But we were down in Florida for the uh, spring plenary assembly of the U.S. Bishops Conference, which is most of what we are going to talk about uh, this week. But we just it did not work out. W- there was so much work to be done there that we just did not um, make a show, did we? We did not. Um, and I had kind of thought you were going to pitch for a show recorded on the Lazy River, which did not happen. And I'm I'm kind <laughs> of grateful for that. Our equipment would it was not it would not have been responsible use of our equipment and responsible care for our equipment. It would also have ruined my suit, but yes. Um, and I mean, we, there were a lot of things I wanted to do while we were in Florida. There were some people that I wanted to see, friends of the show. Um, and we didn't actually get to do any of that. Like you said, we went to an Irish bar. I mean, we did because there, there are there are a handful of people that we see in and around um, at these conference meetings. And, and, and some of them prefer to have conversations with us that are away from prying eyes. Now, Off that campus. Irish bar was cool because it was... It was actually a bar. Uh, it was actually a bar. It's something you don't run into very often these days, but it was a we went to we were invited to meet a friend at a, an Irish bar and we met the friend at an Irish bar and we went in pretty hungry and asked for a menu and the woman said to us uh, this is a bar. And we said I've never been so excited. I just ordered I three pints of Guinness. I was like, "Yes, I'm she, home. Let's do she this." She was so uh she was uh she was damn near insulted that we had even envisioned the, you know, the possibility that she might offer food to us, but she told us we could go across the street to the hamburger place, get a hamburger and then come back, which is precisely what we did. Yes. Although even that was like a 30-minute cab ride from the hotel. I mean, there was nothing around this place. Yeah, that's right. I tore my feet up. You you sustained an injury in the line of work the other week in Indiana, but I I have my feet are in a terrible state. I have torn up the back of my heels because I ran out of smokes um, on day two and and had to walk to the nearest Seven Eleven, which was further than I would imagine. And even in my lightest of lightweight suits, it was a walk and. I got terrible blisters. Like the the Florida sun is not a forgiving thing to go for a a, a roadside stroll in. Um, mm. yeah. This is a funny thing. Why don't hotels sell more tobacco? They should if they're going to they be in the middle of nowhere. You, they don't. Uh, well, they don't I think actually, I do think the bar at the hotel sold cigars. Right? I do think it had actually a nice selection of cigars behind the bar, if it I did. remember correctly. But. But I'm not a millionaire, so... Yeah, you're not a millionaire, and cigars actually, I don't care for. Uh, You know, I'm not not a man of high breeding or class, I suppose, but I don't care for uh, cigars. If I'm going to occasionally indulge in tobacco, it's going to be in a in a more pedestrian form. Well, and the thing is, unless you're Cardinal Dolan, you really can't get through one in the morning coffee break of the USCCB meetings. You know, Cardinal Dolan walked up to me and a small group of other people the day before the meetings formally began. He had had some committee meetings and we're, we're just sort of in the lobby and he, he had a cigar in his hand and he was just making small talk. And then he goes, hey, could, can we, he, he looks at me, he hits me on the shoulder and he goes, can we smoke in here? And I said, well, <laughs> Eminence, I don't, I mean, I this work is here. public, yeah, one, I don't work here too. This is a public building in 2023, so I don't think so. But I said to him what I also thought was true, which was, well, Eminence, I suspect you can. Nobody's going to, I mean, what are they going to do? You're cardinal of the church. And he goes, ha, yeah, I guess that's true. And then he ambled out the door. So he he didn't go for it. But I think he probably could have gotten away with it. You can get away with smoking in a surprising number of places I'm learning in this country. Because did I tell you this? I put it on the Twitters. I was so shocked by it. But I had that long delay coming out of Orlando. My flight was delayed by five and a half hours. There were quite a number of bishops on my flight, all of whom... Not all of whom. The ones who noticed me gave me the sort of hairy eyeball. I'm like, what's that guy doing on our plane? Which, you know, kind of annoyed me because it was my plane too. But um, when we got, when we finally landed, um, everyone was in kind of a, I'd say a high stress, strung out mood. And and the guy in front of me as we're getting off the plane walks like 10 feet from the gate, lights a cigarette and starts walking through the terminal at Newark airport, having a Winston. And 
I was watching this guy. I was walking like 20 feet behind him. I was like this. I was worried. I was fearing for his safety. Yeah, right. I was, like, yeah, know, I was wow. like, this guy is going to get tased. Like, this is not going to go well. And sure enough, a, a woman in a security guard uniform, like sort of went running up to him and basically asked him if he was crazy. And he actually said to her, he said, ma'am, if you'd had the day I'd had, you'd light my next one for me. <laughs> and just kind of looked at her. And she, I'm not kidding you, like put her hands in the air and turned on her heel and just walked off and let him be. I followed this guy out of the terminal and watched him like put the cigarette out on the ground and then put it in a trash. Like I was, that man, I don't, I don't know where he got the moxie, but he he won. Like he just wow. he dared the system, and I was so impressed. Wow, that's really. It something. gave me faith that there was some, there is still some tolerance in our social fabric. That you know, <laughs> a guy who's you know he's yeah. he clearly meant it when he said this is I, I'm not you know I'm not trying to abuse our common society here. This is a necessity, and and that was accepted. I you know I think it's great. I'm surprised that the person felt felt uh qualified to make that judgment you know that they felt they had the sort of discretionary authority not to not to enforce it or whatever i i was surprised by that too i mean i i'm always weirded out by airports and the i mean mostly because they are nowhere else do you have such a high concentration of people with complete arbitrary levels of authority mm-hmm. like anyone you're talking to at an airport could conceivably have you arrested thrown off your plane banned from flying, consigned to a room with, you know, two-way mirrors and all of that stuff. I mean, that's why they kind of freak me out is you're just never sure what's going to happen to you. But yeah, uh, I suppose that's the thing about arbitrary authority is it can be exercised arbitrarily. <laughs> I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. Okay. Um, and we, uh, there are lots of things that we could talk about, but what we're here to talk about is great Catholic stuff. So we're going to start with, um, there's just a lot going on in the church right now. Would you agree? I mean, there's a lot going on everywhere in the church right now, including something that may have, um, may have slipped a lot of people's attention or may have passed a lot of people's attention. Um, but, but it is the thing I want to start with. There, there are three things I want to talk about um, this week. I want to talk about um, the Pope's meeting with the, with the leaders of the U.S. Eucharistic Congress. Um, and I want to talk about the USCCB meeting and unpack some elements of the USCCB meeting. But before I do either of those, Ed, I want to talk about someone, uh, I want to talk about Vatican finances for a moment, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in. Because uh, someone, there's a death in Rome this um, week that may have missed, sort of slipped people's attention, but it's, um, but lamentably um, a, a sort of person connected to the sort of nebulous web of, of the Vatican finance um, trial and scandal died this week and, and um, uh, under really adverse circumstances. And in addition to praying for his soul, I think we might also talk about kind of what that means for the Vatican finance trial and for the sort of reform of Vatican finances in the church and, and what might happen now, because this is not a small thing, actually. No, it's not a small thing. And it's, it, it's in fact a very sad thing. Um, so the person who died this week, uh, for the purposes of clarity, he didn't die in Rome. He died at home in Turin. Um, Ferruccio Panico was the former deputy auditor general of the Holy See, the first person to hold that office. You know, I, I think a lot of people, certainly anyone who listens to the show with any regularity is familiar with the name of Libero Maloney, who was the first auditor general, but his right-hand guy. Who was guy, appointed to be the first guy. Libero Maloney was appointed in what year? Uh, I think 2014, they created the position. Yeah. 2015, he actually to started be the first it. guy to kind of do an internal audit of the Vatican's finances to make sure that money was being spent the way it was supposed to be spent, stored the way it was supposed to be stored, overseen the way it was supposed to be overseen. And uh, and, and this man was his his assistant. Yeah, it was his number two. I mean, they, when yeah. they create when Pope Francis created the office of the Auditor General, it was a big deal that there would be one curial department answerable to the Pope directly that had the authority to look in and pour over all of the books of all the curial departments, and you know, not to retread things often said. Um, there was a lot of resistance to them as they got on their work, and I think most people are familiar with the narrative of Libero Maloney, who you know was turfed out by um, Cardinal Angela Becciu and threatened with criminal prosecution for quote-unquote spying on the private finances of um, senior curial officials. Some Which might was effectively it, doing the monitoring that he was hired yeah, to do, it seems. Auditing and saying things like, well, there appears to be evidence of, you know, money laundering going on here. People are using Vatican um, offices and attendant institutions to pay for private expenses and all sorts of things. So he was conducting an audit. Anyway, so he was 
very publicly fired and forced out of the Vatican. His reputation was trashed and he was threatened with civil prosecution and all of these things. But of course, this all happened to Ferruccio as well. That, you know, he was he was in the room next door to Maloney while the, you know. And he came into this job as a very accomplished corporate auditor. He'd been a professor of internal auditing and a sort of longstanding figure with uh, with a, a lot of gravitas who came into this role probably at a significant pay cut because he effectively wanted to help the church as far as we know and because he'd had a long time of working well, with Maloney. Yeah, not not as far as we know. I mean, uh, Libro Maloney has has said this in in recent months. He said that, you know, he he talked him into coming and saying, "No, you know, we've, we've talked to the Pope. The Pope was behind this idea. This is a way we can serve the church. This is what we're going to do." And so he came to the job with those intentions. What's really um sad about Panico's particular story is that on the day that Cardinal Becciu and uh, Domenico Gianni, who was then the head of the Vatican gendarmes, kicked in the doors of their offices and sort of, you know, grabbed all their files and tried to to seize everything connected with the work they were doing and then, you know, dragged them into small rooms and yelled at them for several hours and ordered them to resign and threatened them with prosecution, all this stuff. Amongst the files that they seized in Panico's office were his private medical records because he was undergoing a course of diagnostics at a Vatican clinic. And, and it was more like they seized all the records in his office and those were there, not sort of like, and we're not letting you have your medical records explicitly, at least initially. At least initially. Yeah. No, they just took everything and said, you right. can't have anything out of your office. Um, but he had been diagnosed with cancer and those records were in his office. Well, they, yeah, they, they had, they had, mar- they had all of these markers. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a diagnostician. I'm not an oncologist, but he had, you know, all of these markers that suggest, you know, heightened PSA levels and all the other sort of stuff that they were in the course of looking to come to a diagnosis of, you know, do you have cancer? And where is it exactly? And all of this stuff. And they took everything. They took all, all of his personal medical records. And despite months and eventually years of him begging the Vatican gendarmes and the secretary of state to give him his personal medical records back, they never did. And so he had to restart the whole process um, in a different hospital in the Italian healthcare system, and and he said this publicly on the record um, that this you know this caused a, a six month to a year delay in his diagnosis and basically landed him with a terminal diagnosis of stage four prostate cancer because which, if it had been caught earlier when he was initially having those screenings it was caught earlier years, yeah it had yeah. been caught earlier but if doctors had been able to act on that catching earlier then you know he could have undergone treatment earlier is what he alleged in his lawsuit and instead. Um, and so he died this week. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, he's, he was, you know, by no means an old man. He was 63. Um, you know, he's, he's left a wife and two children and, and he's never, you know, seen, seen a, a word of apology for what has done. I mean, even if you want to leave aside, I mean, he's, he's a, he was a co-party to the lawsuit that Libro Maloney has brought against the secretary of state and the office of the auditor general for how they were forced out. Um, but even leaving aside the sort of, um, wider, matrix of events and data points uh, around how they were forced out. Just not, not a word of remorse, not a word of apology from the secretary of state for a man who was dying of cancer and just couldn't get his personal medical records back. I mean, it sounds almost unbelievable. I mean, it's such a, such a tragic part of the unfolding of the Vatican finance scandal that this guy, you know, would have been unable to access his medical records as he, if, if, if it's true as he claims. And, that that led to a delay in his treatment for cancer. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking um, and yeah, well, and tragic. And so the question is, at how, so Maloney, who was his boss, is, um, is suing the Vatican Secretary of State for effectively unlawful termination and, um, and for uh, this delay. Loss I mean, of earnings they were suing, and Yeah, they were suing together, and, and this delay was part of it. So what is Maloney going to do? now with the death of Mr. Panico, like what is Maloney has long said that he was treated unjustly. He was hired to do a job. He was a serious professional and he was treated unjustly. And that has been the driver of a lot of elements of the Vatican finance scandal of the past few years. So what, what does Maloney do now, now that his friend and collaborator has died? What, what might happen? I, it remains to be seen, but, and I mean, anyone who's read our coverage knows that we've, We've interviewed and spoken with Libro Maloney and and Ferruccio um, in the past, and it you know I I can say having interviewed Libro Maloney several times that you know a big part of the reason he continued to try and pursue 
um, some sort of just compensation from the Holy See over his termination was in large part because he was driven to help Ferruccio Pinico and his family and to ensure that, you know, in the when it became clear he was going to die of cancer, and it was a question of, you know, in the beginning, a, years and then months and then weeks, that there would be some sort of, you know, pension or settlement or something to, to provide for his, for his family. Um, and that's obviously now still at stake in the lawsuit. But, you know, I, I think likely preying on the minds of everyone close to and involved is that, you know, the, the lawsuit was filed in November last year. The initial hearing was in January of this year, and the Secretary of State has just gone for a full court procedural stonewalling effort. I mean, we've and we've reported on the substance and text of their objections because we've been reading the court's decisions as they've been coming out, dismissing all of them and saying this is a delaying tactic. You are trying to, you know, stop this case from coming to court. It is coming to court. There is, you know, plenty of um, you know, preliminary argumentation and evidence that's been presented. There's all of this, you know. And yet the the Secretary of State has basically pursued a legal strategy of try and stall them out. I mean, in you know, it's kind of it it's not an unknown tactic in the Vatican to just say, well, we're going to ignore this problem until it goes away and resolves itself. And not to put too fine a point on it, what that looks like in the case of Ferruccio Pinico is he's died. I mean, not to uh, he didn't assign malice to the Holy See in in their actions towards him. They just he was you know immensely frustrated, and he absolutely held them directly responsible for his terminal diagnosis. But he said, "I don't you know I don't think anyone in the Vatican you know was was with malice trying to see me die of cancer." But you know their response was, "I I, I don't think anyone in the Holy See articulated a strategy of well let's delay this and maybe the people suing us will just die." No, but I don't think so either. That's nevertheless what's happened i mean that's the that's the result of of legal tactics so far um there's supposed to be another hearing in the lawsuit case before the end of the month we'll see what happens there but it would not shock me if um i mean you know Pinico and, and maloney did make it very clear that they have access to and records of a considerable amount of the financial mismanagement and malfeasance that they say they discovered in their time in office in the Holy See. And they submitted some 500 pages of it in the course of this lawsuit to show that they weren't kidding around. Um, it wouldn't shock me if we if we saw a little bit more of that as a result of this. Yeah, this is actually going to, it seems to me going to, it seems to me that Maloney may well escalate the Vatican finance scandal by, I mean, he has always said, look, there are lots of things that I'm aware of from my work as Auditor General that I haven't brought to the fore, and it's possible that they could come to the fore, and it seems to me that this may be the time when he accelerates things, I mean, just out of frustration. Well, uh, frustration, but also, you you know, you get what you pay for. I, he has been, um, Maloney and Pinico have, you know, have said, we're not going to, you know, just do a massive doc dump of all of the corruption we know about in the Holy See because we went to our work with good faith. We were not removed from our offices in good faith or for good faith reasons as far as their concerns why they're suing. But they said, you know, we've tried years of, you know, formal and informal approaches at the Secretary of State to get justice. We got no we got no response, you know, we got strung along. And then they went for the court route and they said, you know, we're, we're approaching all of this in good faith. We're, you know, we're not going to fight a, a contemporaneous war in the press while we're, you know, trying to get justice through the courts. We're going to have faith in the, in the judicial system. But I mean, the, it's, it's hard to, to say that both sides are playing in good faith at this point, I think. Well, God rest him. And uh, obviously we will, I think this will have impact on the Vatican finance scandal. And I think we have to look yeah, forward the, to that. The Vatican finance scandal now has a fatality. Right, is right. you know, yeah. that, that, is at least the way Maloney looks at it, and that's gonna certainly have the way that the the man who died and his yeah. doctors looked at it. Yeah. Okay. While we're in Rome, we're going to talk about the Eucharistic Congress. The leaders of the Eucharistic Congress went to the Holy See this week to meet with uh, Pope Francis, who gave a, um, a a very strong endorsement of the Eucharistic Congress 
saying to them, it is my hope that the Eucharistic Congress, this is a quote, will inspire Catholics throughout the country to discover anew the sense of wonder and awe at the Lord's great gift of himself and to spend time with him in the celebration of the Holy Mass and personal prayer and adoration before the Blessed Sacrament. The Pope uh, then moved on to say that many people have, quote, lost the sense of adoration. We need to regain the sense of adoring and silence, of adoration. It is a prayer we have lost. Few people know what it is, and you bishops, he said to the bishops in the room, need to catechize the faithful on the prayer of adoration. Um, the Pope said, in the, in the Eucharist, we encounter the one who gave everything for us, who sacrificed himself in order to give its life, who loved us to the end. We become credible witnesses to the joy and transforming beauty of the gospel only when we recognize that the love we celebrate in this sacrament cannot be kept to ourselves, but demands to be shared uh, with all. So in other words, the Pope said, adoration is extremely important. Um, it's a way of contemplating and being in the presence of God. The Church needs to have experience of adoration. You bishops need to undertake that, and adoration needs to have fruits in uh, in the life of the Church. Um, and this is a pretty strong endorsement of the Eucharistic Congress, and I think the Eucharistic Congress rightly has kind of taken that and, and, and run with it. It's interesting, though, because the way it's been framed, it has been very interesting to me. I don't know how much attention you've paid to this, but there are people who have looked at this and said, the Pope completely endorses the Eucharistic Congress, right? And then there are people who say, well, the Pope gave a kind of, you know, even the way the media has covered this, the Pope gave a kind of precautionary warning to the Eucharistic Congress because he told them that the Eucharistic Congress and Eucharistic adoration is important in, insofar as it catalyzes a commitment to the Church's works of mercy and to solidarity with the poor and these kinds of things. And so there have been people, I've seen this, uh, there's been a media framing of this, who have sort of tried to take it uh, to Pope's remarks almost as a rebuke of the Eucharistic Congress, which for me doesn't work. It seems to me that the reason it doesn't work is because the Eucharistic Congress people themselves, I've interviewed Bishop Cousins about this, we've talked with other people about this, have said all along something which is sort of essential to the Church's sense of Eucharistic adoration, which is like, in adoration we unpack the graces of the Mass, so adoration is holy and entirely connected to the Mass, and adoration, this is like drawn from Sacramentum Caritatis and Benedict XVI, in adoration where sort of uh, we unpack and are equipped for and better um, receive the grace by which we live the Christian life, which is solidarity with the poor, the works of mercy, the proclamation of the gospel, and these kinds of things. But this framing is interesting to me because for as much as the Eucharistic Congress sort of proceeds and moves forward, there has been this undercurrent of bishops in the in the U.S. or this current of bishops in the U.S. who have tried, it seems to me, very hard to juxtapose it negatively with the Pope's agenda to say the Eucharistic Congress is in synodality or is in competition with the Synod on Synodality, the Eucharistic Congress is in competition with the works of mercy, um, or with the Church's commitment to social justice. And, um, you know, it's 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 this sort of ongoing sort of, there's been this sort of ongoing drumbeat that sort of tries to theopoliticize the Eucharistic Congress to sort of make it um, a, a point in the, the narrative of sort of disagreement among bishops today. And it seems to me that actually the Pope expressed a sort of unified vision of the thing which undermines that criticism, but... Nevertheless, you know, his words have been taken sort of, you know, by the critics of the Eucharistic Congress as an endorsement of their criticism. Yeah, and that's just bad faith. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. It's just, right? a, I mean, it's it it's bad faith. It's it's deliberate misrepresentation. And I mean, it, I, I, there's no point in beating around the bush about it. People like, for example, Bishop Stowe of Lexington, who, you know, came out of the gate hard a few weeks ago or whatever it was saying. been a critic of the Eucharistic Congress period. The Eucharistic Congress yeah. is and in saying, competition oh, with the Synod on Synodality and a distraction from what the Pope wants for us. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a passive, easy way out instead of actually walking with people and engaging with, which is just, I mean, again, that is itself a bad faith criticism of the Eucharistic revival, because as you know, from having gone there and done the thing, it is by no means passive. It is by no means an easy way out. It is by no means isolated or hived off from contact with people and an evangelizing mission and an understanding of the church's dynamic function. The two are the the proper This is spoiler. Alert, this is something I'm writing about for my newsletter tomorrow. Um, the, the relationship between um, Eucharistic adoration and outward evangelical works including works of charity and mercy i mean this is a symbiotic relationship the one sustains the other this is part of the the dynamic spirituality of the church everyone knows this apart from bishop stowe apparently um well and, he's not been uh, the only episcopal critic of the no he's of, not been but he's the one who's you know been most comfortable just saying ridiculously fatuous things like oh it's just a mega event full of preconciliar theology and pageantry you know it, it's it's it, the the remarks he makes are are not just 
misrepresentations, but they're also just sort of, you know, personally spiteful. Um, so he's a unique standard bearer in that sense. But the, the thing is, this isn't yeah, even a question of like, the Pope's remarks. And I, I, I'm working on analysis on this point. Argue the Pope's, re- Pope's remarks are a rebuke thereof, right? I mean, the yes. Pope's remarks well, are a rebuke uh, of this. The other thing is, this is not like, oh, Pope Francis has an opinion on Eucharistic adoration. Like this, wow, who knew? It's like, he says this stuff all the time. And this is the thing that drives me nuts is the people who like to pretend that they speak for Pope Francis and embody his agenda and understand what synodality means and all this stuff. They, they very rarely actually bother to read anything the Pope says <laughs> or writes. Because, I mean, for example, this is something Pope Francis said, not this year, not this week, not last month, a year ago. I urge you to devote yourselves to the prayer of adoration. This is important. Wasting time adoring Christ is important. It is good to adore in silence before the blessed sacrament, to be in the consoling presence of Jesus and there to draw the apostolic impetus to be instruments of goodness, tenderness, and welcome in the community of the world. I mean, he was saying that last year. Like, this is not a new thing that the Pope is climbing on. And I mean, what I find interesting um, when when sort of perusing the, the attempts to spin Pope Francis as somehow being negative about the Eucharistic revival in Congress is it just doesn't hold water because he actually overtly criticizes the the agenda of, oh, well, actually, what we need is works without faith. What we need is to not waste time in front of the sacrament. All we need to do is get out there and, you know, do the do the good thing. And that's all we need. And everything else is just sort but of But how passive. do we do the good thing? I mean, the funny thing is, like, there's no question. This is the part where, like... <laughs> um, this is the this is the weird sort of anthropological presumption that doing the good thing is sort of just a, a condition of the will, like rather than having the will having been perfected by sacramental grace. Like sometimes there's this presumption that like oh we don't actually need the sort of mystical or devotional life of the church. We only need to do the the things the the the, the genuine work of the church, um, and often not talking so much about evangelization, but talking solely about the works of mercy. And 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 those things are in competition with each other, rather than realizing, oh, the devotional, liturgical, and, and interior mystical life of the church is the thing by which we become people capable of doing the other thing. Like, well, and, um, and not just that it's a good, but the, the the reverse is true. Its absence is a negative. In fact, an inhibiting right. and disqualifying negative. I mean, Francis said this this week. He said that if you don't have what he calls this inner movement through dialogue in Eucharistic adoration, um, he says all you've got is philanthropy and welfareism. I mean, that's a massive burn by the Pope. And it's interesting because if you talk with people who are longtime sort of St. Vincent de Paul people, or I mean, if you if you look at sort of the spirituality of Dorothy Day, there are two options for people who are living in radical solidarity with the poor in one way or another. Either they have rich interior lives or they burn out from it. Three options. Either they have rich interior lives or they burn out from it, or they become corrupt. And um, having a rich interior life is not a guarantor of not burning out from it or not becoming corrupt, but um, uh, it is in the church's own theology, the sort of, the, 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 the only, the only possible path of, of preventing the inevitability of human sin, sort of um, ruining the thing which you're aiming to do. So, uh, so when those things are juxtaposed, we ought to be serving the poor instead of Eucharistic adoration. And this isn't like, me saying the Eucharistic Congress is the only thing. But if the notion of the Eucharistic Congress is uh, the church needs to more concretely engage in adoration, and if part of that is the church needs to more concretely engage in Eucharistic devotion in order to live the mission of the church in the world, that's not novel. It's it's the sort of basic relationship between soteriology and the church's missiology, like that, that it seems to me is just part of an integral and integrated Christianity, you know, like and when you when you separate those two things, look, if you separated those two things and said the church, all of the church should only be engaged in adoration 24-7 and should never proclaim the gospel, feed the poor, etc., that would be wrong. Although I have to say, I don't really come across that. You know what I mean? Like even people whose lives are consecrated to the interior life, sisters, nuns in Carmelite monasteries, we'll put Arlington aside for a moment, but nuns in Carmelite monasteries, by and large, you know, don't have this sort of sense that their work is divorced from the missiological activity of the church. In fact, they understand their work as innately spiritually connected to the missiological 
directed to the spiritual uh, sustenance of it. That's that's why they do it, right? That's yeah. why they do. They the contemplation. Well, this is what is Thomas Merton called the powerhouses of prayer. Yeah, whatever. right. I mean, contemplation like is a, its own good and the highest good, and we're made for contemplation. But but it but, is I mean, also this, the, true the, that the intercessory prayer of play, of Carmels and the the reparations of cloistered nuns and people who are given over wholly to contemplation is directly connected to the mission of the church. It's why any of the great missionaries have these these, as you say, powerhouses of prayer that are connected to them, and people who are engaged in serious apostolate with the poor have the same. Right. Well, the, the thing is, this used to be universally acknowledged and appreciated in the church, and, and it wasn't and obvious, considered... patently obvious is part of the point I want to make. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the, the way in which the sort of sh- shallow ideology of, um, you know, anything connected to adoration or worship of God or appreciation of the divine and the sacraments is somehow, you know, passive in an easy way out and, you know, shirking the hard work. It's like, this is this is not the thinking of the church, not just in the sort of, you know, way that that, that phrase is used when we say, you know, once, well, the church thinks this way, which means the church thinks like me. But I mean, everyone across every sort of ecclesiological bend in the church used to understand this. Like Thomas Merton used to say there was a there was an enclosed um, convent in Harlem um, several decades ago. I think it's since been closed and moved out of the city. But when Thomas Merton was there and around there, he said, you know, there, there's this enclosed convent of nuns who are praying for the salvation of the city. And he said, and he wrote this, like it's in the seven story mountain. Like, you know, he, it was his firm and founded belief that God would wipe New York city off the map, like Sodom right. and Gomorrah before right. it, if it weren't for these cloistered houses of religious in constant prayer and adoration and devotion and intercessory prayer. Like right. this, this used to be something not very long ago that everyone in the church just knew. It was self-evident and it was obvious. And now it's apparently fashionable to sneer at it. And I just, I'm baffled by it. Yeah. I'll read a little bit more from the Pope and then we're going to, I'm going to read us into break. The Eucharist impels us to a strong and committed love of neighbor. neighbor, for we cannot truly understand or live the meaning of the Eucharist if our hearts are close to our brothers and sisters, especially those who are poor, suffering, weary, or may have gone astray in life. Those who believe in the Eucharist must reach out to and visit the elderly who are the wisdom of a people and the sick who take the form of the suffering Jesus. We'll be right back. Listeners, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you uh, by our friends at Seton Home Study School. Seton Home Study School is an accredited school with more than 15,000 students across the country who are fully enrolled in school um, and who are educated at home in the context of their families. Seton offers a way for families uh, to have all of the benefits of textbooks and an integrated curriculum, uh, uh, access to educators and specialists, and at the same time uh, to have the benefits of homeschooling. Seton aims to make Catholic education possible in every part of the country, even parts where uh, parishes can't support their own Catholic schools, and in every home in the country. Um, Parents, if you think that homeschooling may not be right for you, or you may not be sure how to do it, Seton aims to make homeschooling an accessible, real possibility for all Catholic families. And I mean, you say that it has 15,000 students enrolled, and that it makes it possible, and it's all being done in a home setting, and all of this is true. Uh, But bricks and mortar Catholic schools are using Seton curricula, Seton textbooks, Seton materials. I mean, the the materials they provide, the education they offer is such that it's not a question of, you know, oh, this is just for, um, you know, quote unquote homeschooling, that this is, this is a, this is a real authentic way of doing Catholic education that bricks and mortar schools are using, families are using at home, families are using in groups as a sort of homeschooling cooperative. I, I know people near and dear and close to me who are doing this with their children and these are the most articulate and well-formed children I know. Um, they offer, if you're interested, single course enrollments. If you only want to take a course and not an entire program, uh, even students enrolled in public schools could benefit from a religion course on something like the early church and the fathers or understanding the scriptures. And they're doing everything they can to keep costs down, to keep tuition low, to help as many families as they can afford a quality education for their kids. And if you're at all interested, if, you, if you're curious, if you don't know much about it, and you'd like to know more than just what JD and I are telling you about it, you can go to their website, seatonhome.org. There's a, there's a quick video you can watch on the homepage about getting to know Seton, a beginner's guide to Seton, it's called. Um, so take a look, check it out. Yeah, I think those courses, that single course enrollment thing is actually quite cool. There are lots of times when I think, man, I'd really like a refresher on this or I'd really like a fuller perspective on this. I'm, I am probably, I'm not just saying this because they're an advertiser for us. We like Seton. The reason that Seton is an advertiser for us so consistently is because we like them. We 
believe in this. And I, um, I, I'm going to check out these single courses. I'm interested in taking one. I'm sure listeners would love it if I knew a little bit more about what I was talking about from time to time. So if you're interested in these single courses, if you're interested in finding out whether Seton is right for your family um, or uh, how you might make use of the resources and uh, which are made available for Seton, just check it out at setonhome.org. Check out that Beginner's Guide to Seton and, uh, and let them know that you heard about that from us. Setonhome.org. We're back, everybody, by the way, and we're just talking right now. Ed and I are just doing a post game of our commercial for Seton Home Study School. We want to make good commercials for them because we like what they do, and we just want to provide value to our advertisers. If you're interested in being an advertiser on the Pillar Podcast, obviously you can reach out to us. We'd love to uh, love your thing, too, and tell people all about it. But we really do. I think Seton is cool. The more I learn about Seton, the more I think it's quite cool. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not learning more and more about Seton, but I just – a lot of people in my family – use them and love them. And like, I, that, that's all the recommendation I need. Yeah. Smart people that I'm related to by blood and marriage use this to educate their children. Well, I, that, I don't, yeah. That was, by the way, just if you're interested in advertising on the Pillar Podcast, that last minute, that was, that was a that's freebie. Free. That's just the kind of, that's just the kind of service we provide. You know what I'm saying? And, and we mean it, but much as I would love to keep talking about Seton, Ed, we've got to talk now about Orlando and the USCCB. Uh, we have, I would uh, so much rather talk about Seton than I would the USCCB meetings. I know. But you we're, love we're, them so much. We're only going to talk about this. We've, we've only got about 20 minutes left in the show or 25 minutes left in the show. So we're going to just do a kind of a drive-by. Um, but there, but a lot happened. Uh, Orlando, the spring plenary assembly of the U.S. bishops meeting, um, you know, the spring meetings are often thought to be sort of sleepier affairs. And um, and people, you know, fewer bishops attend. In fact, on Friday, the bishops barely had a quorum to vote on some important things. Yeah, but a, a third of, of the conference weren't there. Yeah. A lot of important and interesting things happened at the meeting. And so here's an overview of them. First, the bishops voted on uh, some of the proper texts for, you know, the bishops are in the process of this long, ongoing revision process of the Liturgy of the Hours. And um, at one point they had said, they started this, I, I think they said they started it in 2012. They work with ISIL, the International Commission for English and the Liturgy, which is uh, a, a kind of um, an inter an interconference made, you know, kind of supported by several conferences, all the Anglophonic conferences, um, kind of organization that does translations and then provides them to the bishops of various countries to vote upon or modify or use or not use according to their wishes. And so the bishops of the U.S. have been working with ISIL now for like a long time to to, to revise the breviary, the Liturgy of the Hours, which is the prayer of the church. And, um, and we had learned from an interview with the Liturgy Office of the Conference a couple of years ago that the, there was expectation that the breviary might be revised. The, the Liturgy of the Hours, which Catholics around the world pray every day, might be revised in English for use in the United States by 2024. Now it sounds like the bishops are getting very, very close, but they're saying that 2026, we might be able to buy books by 2026 because the, the bishop's work will probably be done by 2024, but then it has to go to Rome for approval and then publication, obviously. So they're saying you might have books by 2026. So that's, you know, it's moving forward. It's sort of, someone said it's kind of like, it's a sort of infinity point you can, or a sort of half-life point. You can always get closer and never quite get there, but I don't know. I mean, eventually they're going to have to get there. So the bishops did some voting on that, and we got this big update that 2026 might be the year. So that's sort of one of the things. Um, a lot of media attention was given to the bishops voting on a plan to revise the ethical and religious directives to incorporate the recent doctrinal note on, um, on gender ide identity and how hospitals can effectively apply the doctrine of the church on questions related to gender identity. And a lot of media attention was given to that. But honestly, it was not... All the bishops the vote was did of it was no a, it was, significance. Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was a foregone conclusion. All the bishops did was vote to revise the document, which everybody knew they were going to do. The big uh, the big disagreement. There was some foreshadowing of some disagreement. You know, some bishops saying, "Look, we need to remember the ERDs are not, as Cardinal McElroy said, a doctrinal statement, but a sort of pastoral application of doctrinal statement," which could suggest to some that there well, might be seen as actually some, say they were a pastoral application oh, right. of a doctrinal he statement. A doctrinal he just statement, said they're, they're not a doctrinal statement. statement, right? Which could suggest to some that the cardinal expects that a sort of 
application of a doctrinal statement might have some variance with the doctrinal statement itself. Uh, a number of bishops stood up to say that the bishops should consult widely, that they should consult with medical communities, that they should consult with people who identify as transgender. And I think, look, I tend to think that more consulting is good, um, but there's probably some foreshadowing of the fact that it is probably the case that the bishops who have been critical of the Church's teaching on gender identity will be critical of whatever the revision of the of the document is, and it's probably the case that there are bishops who are, it is the case that there are bishops who are not supportive of the revision to the ERDs, they've been clear about that, and who probably view consult, broad consultation not only as a good in itself, but also view it as a delaying tactic. I mean, I think that's probably true, because that's the mode of the conference, is that people who disagree with things often aim to delay them as a, as a sort of operating uh, approach. There was, um, there let was us, a vote. Let us just parenthetically note, this is an issue on which Pope Francis has taught consistently, and in yeah. no uncertain terms. That That's when right. we are saying Who when has we taught hear the teachings of the church, which is that yes, but he has put his own personal stamp yeah. on it and had spoken with. Um, so anybody in, who said in the spirit of Pope Francis, we need to sort of wholly embrace the secular sense of gender identity is missing. Well, he's called it the most grievous kind of ideological colonization right. of our era. That's I mean, right. he's That's right. That's right. There was a little bit of debate, which we've talked about already, between uh, about this document called the Basic Plan for the Ongoing Formation of Priests, in which some, which has been sort of in the works for a little while, and actually kind of, there was some thought in the conference that it had gotten shelved a little while ago, because, so the Basic Plan for the Ongoing Formation of Priests is a document that was first issued in 2001 that tells bishops and vicars for clergy and people like that how to keep priests, how to continue forming priests spiritually, intellectually, um, uh, humanly and pastorally after their ordination. So we spend a lot of time talking about priestly formation, by which we mean seminary, and then this document is meant to say formation is a lifelong process, and, you know, you should continue forming priests. Uh, the 2001 document, obviously it's been around for a while. The 2023 document has been in development for a while. And the reason is that at some point there was a desire to sort of reshape the document, not as something that bishops receive and that bishops do, but that sort of recast the priest as the person who is principally responsible for his own formation that in, and then encourages the priest to form lay communities around him, to form uh, communities of friends, both lay and clerical and religious, I suppose, who can help him to grow as a person, who can give him some accountability, who can have some consistency in his life. Um, but a document like this necessarily espouses a theology of priesthood. And um, this document has sort of been through the ringer with the USCCB for a little while, as the pillars reported, because there have been bishops who have pushed back on its theology of the priesthood, which focuses to some extent on the notion of spiritual fatherhood. Bishops who have said, we don't like this notion of spiritual fatherhood. We think that engenders clericalism. We think that engenders that, that, that wrongly taken can be um, abused. And, and indeed, I think it's true that the notion of spiritual fatherhood can be abused. Like when we covered Pavone, you notice that Pavone did this kind of allegedly did this manipulative thing that many women attested to where he began referring to them as his spiritual daughters and stuff like that as a means of kind of manipulating them when, when he was and brushing their hair and brushing their hair and otherwise being, being weird. And so, um, the notion of spiritual fatherhood, like any notion, um, including natural fatherhood can be abused. Um, but um, there were some bishops, it seemed, who wanted to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, because that notion can be abused and because it could engender clericalism, we don't want it at all, which is a bit of a problem for other bishops because they say, well, look, things like um, the, the longstanding teaching of the church on priesthood emphasize spiritual fatherhood, the Ratio Fundamentalis, which talks about priestly formation, the um, PPF, which we bishops ourselves just you know, put together, voted on, and had approved by Rome in the past couple of years, um, emphasize spiritual fatherhood. So this isn't a new or novel concept, and it's just consistent with what we teach. But this was a sort of a sticking point in the sort of ongoing, a skirmish point, a small skirmish point in the sort of ongoing theological disputes among bishops. All of that we've covered. I don't think, Ed, those were the most interesting things that happened in the conference by a long shot. I'll tell you the two things that I think were the most interesting things that happened in Orlando, and you can tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. Or, or do you want to guess what they are? Do you want to guess what I think are the most interesting things that happened in Orlando? I can tell you absolutely what one of them is. Okay, tell me. Uh, you're, you want, you're fascinated about the failure to bring to a vote the <laughs> I am next three-year plan for priorities and plans and ways and means and whatever they call it. I am, but we're coming back to that one. What do you think is the other one? Um... I mean, for me, the most interesting, the dog that didn't bark was the, the COA report and the bishop's okay. public response to, or lack thereof. Um, 
So the bishops talked about the Seaway report that said the priests don't have a high degree of trust in, in their bishops. The report that came out last year, they talked about it in their executive session, which is kind of ironic. I mean, they talked about this notion that priests don't trust them and think that they can be imperious and stuff, is, and that's a quote from the document, by talking about it behind closed doors. And maybe that's a start. But the problem for a lot of priests we talked to is that in the speech that sort of summarized their discussion, it was kind of like, well, we've talked about that and we've solved it now which seemed to maybe miss the involvement of priests. Well, it wasn't just that. It was that, I mean, and this is Bishop, um, Bishop Boyer of, of Lansing, Lansing head of the Lansing, Michigan. Are there two Lansing dioceses? No, I'm just in case somebody didn't know where Lansing is. Oh, okay. Um, so, I mean, cause he's the chair of the committee on clergy, religious and formation. Consecrated life. Consecrated life. And formation. Um, so he gave a sort of four minute summing up speech, which I mean, as he was giving it, I was kind of wasn't blown away by it. Um, it, it felt very much like he was giving a prepared text that didn't say very much. I, I myself was struck at the time and this was borne out by feedback from priests who were also watching it that he seemed to basically be saying, well, our priests don't seem to trust us. So we need to think long and hard about what our priests are doing wrong um, because we've made some tough decisions as bishops, but they were all the right calls. And, and I thought that was a little tone deaf. Um, and he, you know, he didn't address, for example, something the CUA report threw up time and time again, which is the, which is the perceived and real, as we have covered extensively um, double system of justice for how, accusations against priests are handled in the church and what happens to them and how the same accusations were made against a diocesan bishop um, would be handled. And there is a two-tier justice system in the church, and that does raise some serious questions about accountability and transparency, especially within wider criticism of how priests are treated within the framework of the USCCB essential norms and the Dallas Charter, both of which, as Bishop Boyer said, um, were very important and necessary steps uh, when they were taken in the early 2000s, but doesn't address, for example, that they were mostly written by Theodore McCarrick. Um, so the the gigantic bishop-shaped hole in those documents um, remains evident for anyone who wants to see it. And I was disappointed that none of this sort of got mentioned in Bishop Boyer's speech, but I, I to be honest, didn't think much of it as he was delivering, because I thought, well, this is that that's not the point. He's kicking off the conversation. They're going to open the floor and then the bishops will get to give their personal reflections. And that's where the meat of this is going to come from is individual bishops speaking personally, right. individually. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I thought it was going to be a lot like the 2018 yeah. bishop intervention about McCarrick where bishops were very candid and this matters to me and I'm speaking from the heart and stuff like that. That's what we all thought was going to happen, yes. didn't we? Um, and I was kind of looking forward to it. I thought this is going to be really great. There are going to be bishops lining up at the microphone. They're going to address their priests directly and, you know, offer, you know, offer them something to say, you know, I've heard you. I understand guys. And I'm coming home after this week and we're going to talk about this. And, you know, I'm, I'm there for that. And instead there was nothing, not, not a single bishop wanted to speak. Not a single intervention was made. There was a kind of awkward silence for 20 seconds. And then Archbishop Brolio said, well, I guess everybody just wants to go home early, huh? And everyone kind of laughed and it was like, yeah, really? Right. Wow. Right. Okay. It was a sort of deflated ending to that. And, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully bishops now and bishops, if you're listening to this show, I would suggest that if you were part of that conversation, you go back and talk about it with your priest. You know, I, I asked bishops what they thought of the conversation, the sort of small group conversation, and the reviews were mixed. Some bishops said, yeah, I got a lot out of it. Some bishops said, well, we really just sort of didn't talk very much about it, or we just talked about vocations and what's working vocations and what isn't, and how our seminary stuff is going. You know, there are bishops who said they had substantive conversations about it in their small groups, and bishops who said that they didn't. Um, but bishops, I think that what, the overwhelming feedback that I heard from priests was, if you had that conversation with a couple of bishops at the conference in Orlando, you probably should go back and have that conversation with your priests. And maybe that's synodality. I would think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of synodality, Ed, there were two really interesting things that happened to, from my perspective at the conference. And one of them was what I thought was the best, single best excursus on synodality that I have heard uh, in the, in low on these couple of years since we've had that phrase, uh, namely the kind of talk from Bishop Danny Flores, uh, Daniel Flores on Bishop Flores on the... You um, have a problem with this. Synod on synodality with what? Whenever we talk about bishops, you have a way of um, referring to them by informal abbreviations of their first names as though you were matey with them personally. And 
<laughs> Sometimes it leaks out a little bit. It is not acceptable to call bishops whom you happen to like or have liked the most recently they said. I didn't say I like him. No, I know. I, I'm, I'm just look, saying that say whatever like it is that triggers you can't call a bishop or a cardinal Bob or Bernie or Danny or whatever just because you feel like you know them. Like that's that we you can't do that. You I have actually been corrected by uh, reached out to from diocesan comms offices when I refer when in coverage of our our coverage I refer to a bishop by the co- the name by which he's commonly referred instead of his sort of formal first name and them saying well that's not his formal first name but it's like yeah okay I don't like to play I don't I don't like to play that game where people use the bishop's middle initial oh no often middle initials are banned a certain kind of gravitas it's like come on that's no that's ridiculous. ridiculous we're not playing the sort of ambulance chaser lawyer thing where it's like your middle initial means that you're yeah. you fancy now it's like no we're not doing that but. yeah that's exactly right. At any rate, that speech on synodality was a very, it seemed to me, sober and serious reflection on what synodality is, which basically boiled down to, you know, consultation followed by discernment is an ordinary Christian mode of living and decision-making, and it's actually um, empowering for those who are in authority to gather more information before doing the kind of charism discerning to which they are called— and um, and it's only a sort of threat to that if they don't take seriously their role in it. I thought it was a very sober and um, and and clear reflection on what synodality can be. Now, do I think it acknowledged the problems with the synod on synodality, namely the, the degree to which it can become hijacked and has become hijacked by people who aim to sort of pursue ideological agendas, things like that? Uh, no, I don't think it's sufficiently addressed that. Do I think it's sufficiently addressed a major problem that we saw, which is people sort of advancing the reflections garnered in the synod on synodality as an expression of the census fidelium by which doctrine might develop. No, I, I don't know if it addressed all of those, but I do think it was a good sort of excursus towards the synodal mode, which is basically bishops, there's, it is not a bad thing. In fact, it is a Christian thing to be confident enough in one's authority to consult broadly and to listen before making decisions. Yes, I enjoyed all that. I agree. It was a very, it was a very helpful um Excursus on the on the nature of synodality. I thought it would. I thought it was particularly helpful in clarifying um, when set next to, for example, Archbishop Pierre's address on synodality, which I think is like the third time he's given it to the USCCB. But um, why? How did you how did you read or perceive that? Well, Archbishop Pierre's talk on synodality, which I've heard a number of times now, is just sort of like, well, synodality is is synodality, and synodality is good, and we know it's good because it comes from the Pope, and the Pope speaks for the Holy Spirit, and so therefore it's great, and it must be a success. And if you have questions about it, it's because you're not fully entering into it. And I mean, the the circular logic and rhetoric of it, I find uncompelling and unhelpful. Which, and again, I, I'm not a I'm not a synodality skeptic. I am a synod on synodality skeptic. I've been pretty upfront about that. But the na- the concept of synodality in the church, I'm not skeptical of. And Pope Francis's desire for a more quote unquote synodal church, I'm not skeptical of. Um, in fact, I think actually the church, from my observation, the church in the U.S., which has institutionalized pastoral councils at the diocesan and parish level which has often functional presbyteral council, not always, but often functional presbyteral councils. Um, it, it seems to me that I, I, I'm aware of places where really the notion of pastoral councils never took off and, and sort of never existed and, and where presbyteral councils never meet or the bishop is sort of never hears them. Now, there are certainly places in the U.S. where that's true, but but I'm aware of sort of countries where the, where the presbyteral council is, is, is basically doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so in a certain way, there are certain elements of what is called synodality that pre-exist the sort of its recent promotion in the life of the church well, here in the uh, United the, States. Um, several American dioceses have been holding actual diocesan synods for years before the synod and synodality was called. I mean, this is the, to have a synodal church in the United States is not um, in, in any way something that has, you know, just begun in the last two years. This is, you know, the, we, we were moving in that direction, and, and I think that speaks to the Pope's um, assertion that a more synodal church is what the church of the future will look like, and you know, I think you can, I think you can read that from from the recent history of the church in this country, uh, even before the synodal process began. I, you know, what I what I was not encouraged by particularly is um, after his speech, um, Bishop Flores gave you know a, a press conference. He took a few questions, and one of the questions I think it came from you was, you know, there's there are these delegates, these lay delegates that are going to be attending the Synod of Bishops meeting in October, coming from all the different continental um, synodal. I, what do we call them? They're not. Are, are, are the, is the, the continental regions, level the, 
continental regions. They're not the, they're not their own regions. synodal assemblies, are they? No, they did. They had continental synodal assemblies, although the word continent is a bit of a fiction since what we mean is cultural and regional groups. For example, the continent of North America was limited to the United States and Canada, which is actually a minority a, of countries in Latin Amer in North America. Yeah. You know, not only Mexico, but the Caribbean countries all participate in CLAM, which yeah. has more the Central and Latin American continent, which has more North American countries represented in it than the so-called North American Senate. Indeed. Whatever. But anyway, so he was asked, you know, well, how do these, how do these other delegates get, get picked? There's the sort of papal invitation ones. And then there's the ones who are sort of supposed to be proposed by, by the continents themselves. And how are those? And, and, you know, and he said, well, people have been doing the synod on synodality for a while. And it basically seemed to me that he was saying is the people who work at the conference are going to be the late representatives, which I was not, I mean, it did not seem to me to be what the thing was, how the thing was purported. I mean, I actually did not, we're not crazy about that. I'm not crazy, but I didn't get specifically that it was people at the conference. And again, there are, there are people at the conference who've been doing a great job on this. I think, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's not yeah. that I think they're unqualified by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the, what I got from Bishop Florence's answer was that the preference was basically for the church's technocracy will, will fill these roles, that it's going to be people who work in diocesan chanceries and people who work in the conferences. And again, not that there's anything wrong with those people. We know and love them. They're, they're great people. But if we're going to have a quote unquote authentic experience of synodality, it seems like you should have some people from the pews. Um, mm -hmm. And there doesn't seem to be much space for that, which I, I think is a little disappointing. Um, but I mean, I, I'll tell you one thing that strikes me about the, about synodality and um our bell's going to ring. Remember our old bells back in the old days? We used to have that we bell have when our bell. time ran out on something. Our bell's going to ring on this one kind of soon because we have one more topic we have to hit and we have six minutes. So tell me one thing that strikes you about synod on synodality, but just know that the bell might ring at any time. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the things that ding, people ding, keep ding, asking ding, and ostensibly the synod on synodality proposes ding, to ding, answer ding. is what is synodality? And that's why you get these sort of, you know, sometimes very interesting um, and helpful presentations like Bishop Flores and sometimes these kind of sort of circular logic, difficult to parse dresses like Archbishop Pierce, but they're all trying to answer this question of what is synodality, but really the whole synodal process is, according to Pope Francis, supposed to be a discussion of what does it mean to be synodal, and that's all fine. But when you get arguments and you do see them everywhere, it's like, well, if you don't know what synodality is, it's because you're not doing it right. And if you're not, you know, fully bought in, then, you know, you're you're against the Pope and against the Holy Spirit. And that that kind of chafes with me a little bit because we've seen the synodal process work very well in some U.S. dioceses and in places like Africa and things like that. And then you have places where the synodal process is an absolute dumpster fire and a clear and present danger to the universal church like Germany. And and to sort of say, well, synodality means to do it. It's like, okay, fine, but who's doing it right? You, these can't all be authentic synodality because one is manifestly against not just the teaching of the church, but the authority of the Pope personally. And others are trying to conform to his will. So this can't all be a joyful expression of synodality that is for the good, because that which is manifestly against the church is not for the good, yep. it's for the bad. Yep. So like there has to be some sort of usable metric that we can apply to say, what is good synodality versus what is bad synodality? And, you know, everyone seems to get really cute when you try and say, okay, but, you know, what is it really that we can say we're doing right in the Archdiocese of Minneapolis, St. Paul, sorry, St. Paul, Minneapolis, um, you know, in my, the Bishop's Conference of Nigeria, but the German Bishop's Conference are doing badly. Like, if we, if we have no language to talk about where the differences are there for good and bad, then I'm not sure how coherent a process the global synod and synodality can be said to be. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, we have uh, two minutes for me to explain to you the mystery of the conference, the big mystery of the Bishop's Conference meeting that uh, came up that I have not resolved, which struck me as the most interesting thing. Uh, every three years, the bishops go through a process called strategic uh, strategic plan. Well, they're constantly, they're in a, the revolution is permanent. They're in a permanent strategic planning process, but the bishops approve these three-year strategic plans that um, sort of outline what their priorities are and then that outlining of what their priorities are means that outlines how they allocate personnel and how they allocate money. The bishops spend time consulting on this with bishops at regional meetings and a little bit with staff, but with each other. And this came up at the November meeting where the priorities and plans were raised. And they were kind of like pro-life, family, evangelization, the sort of things that the bishop's conference has generally identified. And, uh, and they were consulted about them then, and it was discussed then, and then they were supposed to be voted upon for the 2025 to 2028 strategic plan 
period at this meeting, but instead um, the thing was withdrawn from the agenda. The vote was withdrawn from the agenda, and Archbishop Coakley, who was the secretary and the president of the uh, Priorities and Plans co- or the chair of the Priorities and Plans Committee, said like, "Well, we're not doing. We're withdrawing these. We're not doing away with um, strategic planning. We're just, um, in fact, on the contrary, we're 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 trying to do better strategic planning and." We want to do it in tandem with synodality and synodal processing and synod, 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 synod. And so we're going to withdraw it, but we are going to deal with these and we are going to vote on these, but we're going to withdraw them for right now so we can do a better synodal planning process. And and I have no idea what that means or why the conference withdrew its uh, strategic plans and priorities. And I've been trying to get the answer and I have not been able to get the answer and I'm frustrated about that. But the most interesting thing that happened to me is this sort of sudden withdrawal of something that should have been an ordinary process because usually behind the scenes on something like that is something significant and something important that sort of portends some issue for the future of the conference. I'm, I'm willing to believe you on that. And I guess my question is this, you're a conference nerd. Um, what is the order of urgency through which this thing needs to happen? So because they, they decided they, well, they weren't going to do it. They can approve it still in November. I mean, again, it's for the 2025 to 2028 period, but they do budgeting for that in 2024. So they really do need to know what the plans and priorities are in 24 when they're doing the preparatory budget cycle for 25. But they have time if they approve these same dot plans in 2020, November 2022, excuse me, 2023, which we're in, that would be fine. But if they went much further than that, it would put some pressure on just the ordinary internal budgetary cycles and stuff like so that. So we can expect to see this either go through in the ordinary course of events in Baltimore in November, or if it doesn't, then we know there's... If it doesn't, something's really some, up. The train has gone but off the rails somewhere. Even delayed, something is, re- something is seemingly up, or there's some disagreement about this. I've heard that there were some disagreements, but I really don't have my arms around it, and I want to. So um, that's what it is. But uh, but I do think whatever is going on there is potentially significant, and to me is the great mystery of the of the of the great mystery of Orlando. Well, I I am confident that you are going to get to the bottom of that because i know what happens I, I don't, i'm not i'm not i'm usually confident that i'm going to solve a mystery but i've got nothing on this one listeners if you know what it is you know where to find me uh ed this week's episode of the pillar podcast is brought to us by seton home study school to find out if seton study home study school is right for your family check it out at seatonhome.org that's seatonhome.org and let them know that ed and jd at the pillar podcast sent you the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. We'll see you next week, and maybe we'll solve the mystery. 